Okay, can everybody hear that? That's fantastic. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Father, we are grateful that we have the Bible in a language that we can understand. We thank you that you do desire to communicate with us. And Lord, I pray that as we look into your word now, you might lead us into truth. And as we listen to this truth, we might embrace it wholeheartedly and that it might reflect in our speech, in our thoughts, and in the way we treat one another. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. A few years ago, a friend of mine did an exercise. It wasn't really an exercise. He was in a habit that what he would often do with his youngest child was that he would come home at the end of every week after a busy week and every Friday his son, who was about four years of age at the time, had a desire to collect money. It was a, well, my friend's American and it's kind of the American custom over there that people get an allowance. Now I grew up again, if my, I turned 16 and I remember my dad saying to me, hey son, do you want a car? I said, that'd be great. He said, good, let's go get you a job. Okay. <laughs> but in America, they're in the habit of, even from a young age, giving people money or giving their kids money. And there's, uh, there's different ways of doing it. And some of them teach their children responsibility on how to handle finances, and that's fine. But I remember this one bloke, he had his four-year-old, and every week he would give his four-year-old 10 cents. It was kind of the smallest a coin that he could give, and so uh, it was something that jingled in the jar that this little boy kept. And so every week, rain, hail or shine, he would come and he would give 10 cents to his child. Anyway, one day, uh, as it so happened, my friend returned home and he looked around in his, his wallet and he didn't have any change whatsoever. And he thought, what am I going to do? I don't want to disappoint the young fella Uh, And so he looked into his wallet and all he found was a $20 note. Now, I've got an Aussie $20 note up here. It was an American one, so it's probably worth like $9,000 or something. (laughs) But he had this $20 note and he thought to himself, you know what, my son has been pretty good and I know that he has some desires to save money. I'll go ahead and I'll give him the 20 bucks." And so he called his son in and he said, Joshua... Look, I, I don't have 10 cents for you this week. And Joshua's face dropped. He could not believe it. And he looked up to his dad and he just, you know, shook his head and, you know, was so disappointed he didn't have his 10 cents. And then his dad said, but Joshua, I've got something even better. And he pulled out his wallet, got out this nice, crisp $20 note and he gave it to his son. His son looked at the note, looked at his dad and said, I want my 10 cents. (laughs) And his dad sort of in a moment of disbelief, I guarantee his dad wouldn't do this in about 10 years time. His dad would accept the money and put it back in his wallet. But the dad said, no, 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 you don't understand, Joshua. I'm giving you $20. It's worth far more than 10 cents. It's worth lots of 10 cents. And Joshua, as a four-year-old would, started clenching his fist. I want my ten cents! All this time, the dad is trying to coerce and convince this kid, no, 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 this is far better. 
but his mindset didn't understand it. He didn't understand the value of the very thing that his dad was placing into his hands. And as a result of not understanding, he didn't value the gift that he'd been receiving. Now, you know something, we've been travelling along in the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians is a little bit like that. And I fear that many of us unknowingly often side with Joshua when it comes to things spiritual. That is, for many of us here, the truths that we've been going over in Ephesians 1, 2 and 3 are truths that are $20 truths. And yet for many of us, when it comes to the Christian experience, we feel like we're living a five cent or a ten cent life. What we need to do and what we're going to do today, we're going to reorient ourselves as Paul is going to change gears as it were and he's going to, lay the, having laid the platform of chapters 1, 2 and 3, which we'll review here in just a second, he's now going to leap forward in the next half of the book And he's going to give over 40 commands on how you and I can experience God's joy, faithfulness and purpose in our own lives as a result of understanding the $20 or million dollar salvation that has been provided for us. So by way of background, if you've got your Bibles and I encourage you to open them and have them open in Ephesians 4, Uh, As many of you are aware, the book of Ephesians sort of falls naturally into two places. Uh, Chapters 1, 2 and 3, where again we've suggested is primarily theological. We're going to get theological stuff also in chapters 4, 5 and 6. But Paul's primary goal in these first three chapters has been to orient our heads towards our position in Christ. He's made several big claims stating that if we are identified in Christ and our relationship is with him, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. We have power over sin. We are no longer run by or overtaken by sin and death and trespasses. In Christ, we have new life where there was once death. And in these opening chapters, that's been his focus for us to think clearly about who we are as it relates to Christ. Now, as I said, he changes gear and he moves into application. But I thought it would be fitting for us, uh, I didn't cover this last week, but for us to get a summary statement of the first three chapters. And if you've got your pens there, I'd encourage you either to mark your Bibles or just jot this down. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. You're looking for a good summary statement of what's going on in these first few chapters. This is really what Paul has been trying to reveal. Let me read it to you. It says that his, talking about God, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we approach God with freedom and confidence. What he's going to do now in chapter 4, he's going to move from this platform of knowledge that we are in Christ, we're part of God's purpose, and he's going to say now in freedom and confidence, this is how you are to behave towards God and also towards each other in the Christian church. So that's the question we're addressing today. How do we live with heaven as a reality in our current experience 
here on earth. Or to put it another way, how do we live $20 lives instead of living and chasing after the 10 cents of this world? Well, let's look and first of all begin in chapter 4 in verses 1 to 6. This passage itself actually divides uh, quite neatly into two major sections. Uh, You could probably divide it into three, but the two sections that I would like us to look at, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Here, if you were to ask me for a summary statement of what's going on, the summary command, he's going to move into commands now. I'm going to summarise it for you this way. I think he's talking in these verses exhorting us with this basic implication. Live a life worthy of your high calling. Okay, that sounds fairly simple and Paul is going to unpackage it, but he's going to open up with a very generic and or, you know, general introduction and exhortation. He's going to say, in light of everything we've heard, you now need to live a life worthy of this calling. Or to put it another way, Because of this $20 lifestyle, this $20 hope that you have, quit living $10 lives or 10 cent lives. This is the picture that he's painting here. It's interesting, the first few words here, um, I've got the NIV here and it says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, they've made it nice for us to read, but the very first three words in the Greek text that appear before us are the words that are found later in the sentence. And that is, I urge you, uh, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. This, these three words you've heard before in another famous book, the book of Romans. When Paul gets through 11 chapters of theology, he starts Romans chapter 12 verse 1 with these same three words. Therefore, I urge you. That is exactly the same thing that goes on here and that's actually how chapter 4 starts. And as I mentioned, the NIV, they've done no sin here by rewording it, but I don't want us to miss the pattern that is in Paul's mind uh, and that is in Paul's literature as he writes to the church. In Romans, he says, I want to undergird your thinking correctly and as a result of that, now I'm going to move you into the place of practice. This is always Paul habit. Galatians is the same. 1 Thessalonians is the same. He gets to this passage, it is the same idea. If you want to live the life God intends for you, you need to understand, first of all, a little bit of basic theology. And the theology that is presented, it's not always basic, in fact it's quite deep. But these, there are certain truths you should get into your head if you are to live right. You see, it's one thing to have a great heart, But if you don't know what God intends for you and what God is after, then you can end up just being a little bit flaky, a little bit full of gusto, but not really going in any particular direction. And so he starts off here urging them, and he bases it on his own position. Paul's in prison. He's reminded them of that in a previous prayer. But he looks back. As a prisoner for the Lord then, really the idea of therefore, it's the idea of looking back. As a result of these things then, and I don't think he's just talking about chapter 3, I think he's making reference here to the first three chapters, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, you remember in chapter 2, we talked a little bit about this concept of living or walking. Some of your translations of the Bible say, walk in a manner worthy. And the picture here, and the NIV translates it live, and that's a good way of viewing it. Uh, But there is a metaphor here. In the Old Testament... 
The idea was that one person, just like in the Garden of Eden, that you could walk with God. Walking involved a manner of lifestyle. In the Psalms, you'll remember it talks about not walking with the wicked. The idea is you go about your lifestyle and the picture is of a person walking and it's the idea of as you go about your life. In chapter 2, he uses this term negatively. He said, you used to walk, your manner of life used to be walking in what? Sin and trespasses. Here he's going to use it in a positive manner. In chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to say, live or walk a life worthy of the calling you have received. This idea of walk, listen to when it turns up again in Ephesians. Here he says, walk worthy of the calling you have received. Chapter 4, verse 17, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, walk as children of light. Chapter 5, verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Here is the picture and here is the general exhortation he gives to us. In light of these first three chapters, in light of the calling that you have received, walk this way. Now when we think of calling, what is he talking about? What is this high calling? Well, if you remember back in our our previous weeks, the first calling was that God the Father chose us from eternity. Why did he choose us? Why did he select us? Why did he include us in his purposes? It's, there's a lot of mystery involved there. But one of the things that's very important is that Paul will say we are part of God's purpose and he'll unfold this as the letter goes on. And he'll say this calling, God's purpose, is achieved through the person of Jesus Christ. We're sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. But more than that, he moves us from life to death, uh, rather death to life in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. He says, more than that, you are now part of a new community which you didn't belong, chapter 2, verse 11 through to chapter 3, verse 13. And after praying for them in chapter 3, verse 14, through the end of chapter 3, he says, as a result of all these good things, now live up to your high calling. This is the high calling that he's talking about. These great truths, he says, walk in a manner worthy and befitting of these truths. So what does that look like? Well, fortunately, Paul doesn't leave us in the dark and he gives us many commands here and we'll we'll start going through some of them. The first thing he says is that we're to walk worthily and to to do such, it requires humility. He says, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Now, the idea of humble, it's funny the terms that he uses here, humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. These commands that he gives are often terms that are misunderstood. The idea of being humble, I used to think of being humble as kind of, oh, you sort of walk around and you, you sort of keep your head pretty low and you know, wait for somebody to come and pat you on the back and tell you, you know, you're really a terrific fella, okay? That's not the picture here. The picture here is of lowliness and it is of servitude. But it's the picture of willingly choosing to live a life that is meek and gentle and it's the idea of seeking to improve the life of others. Being concerned about their affairs. This is why the ultimate picture of humility is found in the life of our Lord Jesus. Many of you remember in Philippians 2.5, Uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11 rather, Jesus, 
the true model of humility, doesn't consider himself and consider his own desires, but he considers the desires of others and becomes obedient even to death, uh, the death of a cross. And here he opens up and says, that is to be one of the character traits that you are walking a life that is worthy of your high calling. You're actually a humble person. You're a teachable person. You're a person who seeks the best in others. Secondly, it's this picture of gentleness. Again, when I think of gentleness, uh, I almost think of that uh, part of my upbringing, that if you were gentle, it actually meant you were kind of a bit of a wuss. Okay, you're a bit of a sissy pants, you know. If you're a, oh, you're gentle. Okay, that's what, you know, we often think, oh, gentle. That's the, the really old guy, you know, crossing the street, holding the hands, you know, of some old duck. You know, oh, he is a gentle man. Okay, where gentle, being gentle, the term itself has this similar idea. It's the idea of being meek. And it's, it's not necessarily being just somebody who has walked over. In fact, Aristotle said that somebody is gentle, and he painted gentle this way. It's a pretty safe bet by old Aristotle. He said it's a cross between somebody who can get angry at a really bad situation and somebody who can be really calm under other circumstances. He said gentle is somebody who can be right in the middle and can be sort of both. Okay, nice and safe, Aristotle. All right, nothing profound there. But really, the picture of being meek or being gentle is the idea somewhat that you are controlled. Because we find Jesus, who is one who is known as being gentle and meek, but we also find him at one stage in the temple with a righteous indignation. And at other times, we we find him very, very meek and very gentle and very caring with people. And I think the picture here is of one of control being able to, as Aristotle would say, sort of be the middle of the road. And he says that is to be one of the character traits that you are actually walking worthy. Gentleness in what you speak, in how you live, in what you do, should be a characteristic of your life and my life. Thirdly, there's this idea of patience. Walking worthily requires patience. John Chrysostom, who was also known as Goldemouth, a very fine preacher in the early church, Uh, did a word study on this, and according to Chrysostom at least, uh, the idea of patience is the idea to have a wide and a big soul. And here the idea of patience is the idea that you can, um, even when you're annoyed or even when you're afflicted, you will show a steadfastness of character, that you won't just buckle, that you will ride something out and that you will be persistent, even during times of testing. Here the Apostle says that patience, be patient, that is to be a characteristic of the Christian experience. And then, then also he says we, we are to require uh, to put up with others. This is my translation. Um, it's not quite as nice as the NIV, but I think this, the idea is there. Bearing with one another. This participle has the idea of actually knowing other people's problems and knowing other people's faults and actually still embracing them. And the idea of forbearance is the idea that you do put up with the needs of others and you don't just say, look, okay, you're a bit of a nuisance, um, you know, and I'm just not interested in, in bearing your burden. It's like the old saying, to live above with saints we love, 
Oh, what joy and glory to live below with saints we know. That's a different story. Okay? Uh, Okay, it's not that sort of attitude. It's not I'll get along with people who I'll get along with. The idea of forbearing and the idea of bearing the loads of one another is truly a Christian characteristic and it reflects somebody who understands that they have graciously been shown favour by God, therefore they too, in their behaviour, should be characterised by going that extra mile and showing forbearance to people who might be annoying or people who might uh, sin against us and even wrong us. And that is the picture here. But then lastly, uh, verse 3 and really following, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, which brings us to this idea that one of the ways that we can tell that we are walking worthily is we're committed to the whole church. Now, again, this doesn't mean that everybody in church will be our best friends. Uh, We all have different personalities. We all have different temperaments. Uh, I rub people, some people, the wrong way. And there are other people who listen to country music who rub me the wrong way. (laughs) Uh, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Okay, but the idea is that this is not calling for everybody needs to sit around and have their arm around each other singing Kumbaya all day. Okay? The picture here, though, is one of a community that in its very essence is committed to some major truths and are unified in their perspective of these truths. Uh, It's funny, he's writing here, as we've said before, he's writing to Jews and to Gentile people who have been saved from their lifestyles and have trusted in Christ and are now walking with their God. And he writes to them and he paints this picture of unity. And you'll see the obvious thing here. If it was Sesame Street, we would say to you, chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, is brought to you by the word one. Okay, it's mentioned here seven times. He's trying to say something to us. One body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. The picture here is very simple. If you're going to walk a life that is worthy of your high calling, you are going to be unified in that walk as you walk corporately with all believers. As I've said before, there are many things you can do in life by yourself, but being a Christian is not one of them. You were not designed to live the spiritual life by yourself. All of the imagery that Paul is going to use here in this passage, as he does uh, consistently through his writings, is connecting truth to our community. Even the spiritual growth that we'll look at here in just a few minutes is spiritual growth that takes place in community. He's going to use metaphor of a body. He's not just going to use metaphor of a thumb. Okay, He's going to talk about a community And that's going to be very important. So this brings us to the end of our first movements. Fairly straightforward and I I would encourage you to to reflect some uh, when you get a chance on the imperatives here because I think it's easy for us just to skirt through the material. But sometimes I look at here and I see patience or forbearing or bearing with one another. And I think there's enough truth in here that maybe I need to stop and reflect and I'd encourage you to do that later on as well. But in a very generic sense, he's opened up by saying... You need to live a life worthy of your high calling. But then he moves on secondly to another movement here, verses 7 to 16, where he, if I was to summarise it, I would say it, state it simply this way. 
Serve in unity for the benefit of others. Serve in unity for the benefit of others. Uh, You'll notice how verse 7 actually begins. It's our favourite little Greek word, but uh, this little um, coordinating, here it's adversative uh, conjunction, it's contrasting something that's gone on previously. He's talked about one, 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 one. And now he's going to say, but there's still some diversity. We're unified as a community. We're unified in our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're unified in our desire to be part of God's purpose. But each one of us, he's going to explain, is different. And here he's going to focus, uh, I think, a challenge for each one of us in regards specifically to service and how we use our gifts, our spiritual gifts, in regards to serving each other. Now, the funny thing is when we talk about spiritual gifts, unfortunately, uh, Christians, we have a way of really complicating things. Uh, we do this, and I've uh, done a few years' study in theology, and it's funny how you can get people who will study theology and actually miss the whole point. Uh, now, this is nothing profound. I'm sure people do it in other disciplines as well. But it's interesting, there are certain commands that you give that are fairly straightforward. And spiritual gifts, when we study them, there's not a lot of controversy about them in the New Testament. Now, we have controversy and we say, well, does this gift exist? And, you know, if somebody can play, uh, you know, the banjo, is that a spiritual gift or is it just a talent? You know, or, and, and we say, does this gift still exist? And should everybody have every gift? Well, I'd like us just to walk through this passage and I think there are some basic observations we can make about spiritual gifts and I think it's important that we do so because it's going to tell us how we can then serve, live up to that high calling through serving one another in unity. Now, this is not the only passage. If you're interested in spiritual gifts, I'd encourage you to look at a couple of passages. This would be one. Uh, Romans 12 would be another place to look. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 would be another place to look. And 1 Peter 4 is also an important place to look in regards to spiritual gifts. But here he's going to make a few observations and he's going to talk uh, about gifts. And there's a, a quirky quote from Psalm 68 that we'll look at. But he starts off and he says, To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And here he's going to go on and he's going to say that there are gifts given to the body of Christ. Some have this gift, others have another gift. And he'll, then he'll say, and the purpose of the gift is X. And we'll, we'll have a look at what that means. But the first thing we discover about spiritual gifts in regards to service is that spiritual gifts are grace gifts. That's what he refers the, to here when he says each one of us, grace has been given. Uh, this term given is simply the, the, the terms related to gift. Okay, and he says that we've been given this gift. It's been apportioned through grace. Now, uh, if you've been tracking with us in Ephesians, you've discovered that grace, quite simply defined, is you get something you don't deserve. Okay, God does not look upon you and say, okay, there is somebody who's got a, a, a graduate degree, therefore I'm going to give them this gift, and this person over here, oh, they've only been to Lithgow High School. Okay, so I'm going to give them this gift. Okay, he doesn't apportion it based on education. He doesn't say, there's a Jewish person, they're going to get a great gift, and oh, there's a Gentile over there, you know, I'll give him the leftovers. 
Okay, no, no, no. He says in regards to spiritual gifts and service, he says that each one of us has been given something, a gift, through grace. You don't get to choose your gift. How God creates you and how God wires you and the gifts and ability that he does give you are unique to you. They're not there because you merited them. So sometimes uh, I've met people before. I remember hearing this very fine preacher and I went up to him and I said, friend, you are really a gifted communicator. You know, well done. And he said to me, he said, I didn't get the gift. He said, I used the gift that God has given me, but I did nothing to acquire it. And because of that, I don't get to get any of the thanks because I didn't earn this. This is not about me. This is a gift. And that's the idea of grace gifts. Uh, Even the word, many of us are familiar with the term charismatic. comes from two words. Charis, grace, martyr, gift. A grace gift. You get something that you don't deserve. And that's the picture that he paints right through here. In fact, as he goes down through this passage, uh, to emphasise it, he actually quotes Psalm 68. And it's kind of a quirky passage. And in fact, uh, the reader of my PhD thesis, uh, he's more nerdy than me. He wrote a whole thesis on these two verses. Um, So I know a little bit about these two. Uh, I had to learn. Uh, But here the emphasis is, he quotes Psalm 68, and his basic point is this. He wants to emphasise Jesus coming... He ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave, gave gifts, and we're talking here about spiritual gifts, to men. It talks about Christ ascending and it also talks about Christ descending. Look at verse 9. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Uh, from this verse, unfortunately throughout church history, there have been, I think, theological errors that have been made and they even turn up in some creeds that Christ descended and spent time and, uh, in hell. And there's often debate as to how long he spent there and what he did down there. And it's often based on this verse. And there may be, people might look at 1 Peter 3.18 and some other passages for their proof. But one of the, the verses that they use here relates to this phrase, he descended to the lower earthly regions or lower parts of the earthly regions. Now, without being too technical, it all boils down to, the, to how you understand this lower earthly regions. And some people think that it's a partitive genitive, which is very nerdy of me to say. And it's the idea he descended to the lower parts of the earth, uh, which would be hell, and some people think of hell. Uh, but then other people see it as a genitive of apposition or epexegetical, and that would be translated... He, oh, I know, that's nerdy. But... But I, I have to promise my thesis reader that I'd say it once in my life. Okay. And that, that, would, that would be something like this. He descended to the lower parts, namely the earthly region. And here you would understand that at the incarnation, he's making reference here to the incarnation. He's simply saying, Jesus came down, he was on the earthly regions, and when he ascended, he left gifts, spiritual gifts for the church. I think that's Paul's basic point and I'm happy to talk to you about partitive genitives later on, okay, free of charge. (laughs) But here the basic point is that it's a gift. Spiritual gifts are, in fact, grace gifts. There's a second thing, though, that I want to focus on, and that is verse 11. It was, he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And here I want to just point out that when it comes to spiritual gifts and the way God wires you, 
He wires us each differently. He doesn't make us all speakers. If we're all speakers, who would listen? If we were all leaders, who would follow? If we were all gifted in one area, what would happen to all the other areas? And I think his point here is that gifts, he doesn't say that it was he who gave all to be apostles or all to be prophets. No, he gave some. And the interesting thing is, if you compare the lists of Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and then here in Ephesians 4, the lists don't look the same. And I'm not sure we often do things, and it's good for us to do little uh, tests to work out what our spiritual gift is, or we might have more than one, spiritual gifts are. But I don't know if Paul is trying to make a list here that you have to fit on. I think his point is simply, hey, God has given each one of us certain abilities, talents, gifts that we use for the building up of the church. And he will say that they are not uniform. That's why when somebody comes to me and they're enthusiastic about a particular type of spiritual gift and they say, you need to have this gift, I look at a verse like this and I say, no, I don't. God doesn't make all people have this gift. And I don't find evidence for that. In fact, there's diversity. Spiritual gifts are for the building up of others. He goes on here in this passage and he'll talk about verse 12. This is to prepare God's people for works of service. Ultimately, gifts are not about you exercising your gift for your pleasure. Gifts are used for going out and helping other people to do the ministry. Now here, some would argue that he's talking primarily about chief or important gifts for church leadership. Uh, Whether that's the case or not, the picture is still the same. The idea of having a gift is so that you will then train and equip somebody else to go out and to do ministry. I work part-time here uh, with the EU as a senior staff worker and the other half of my time I spend at Barney's. My job at Barney's is not to do the ministry. Okay, I preach and I do some of this and I do some of that. My job is to help people in the church work out what their gifts are so they can go out to university, so they can go out to their homes, so they can go out and serve the church. And often I think that's something we need to reorient our mind. That ministry is not something that you just pay somebody to do. Ministry is the obligation of everybody who is in Christ. That's why God has gifted you that way. Spiritual gifts are interdependent, verse 16, and we could spend a bit of time on that. But the idea here is that he says at the end of verse 16, each part, uh, here using a metaphor of the body, does its work. As I mentioned earlier, we can't all be thumbs. Uh, in God's body, you need an elbow, you, you need a leg, okay? And Christ himself is the head. But he doesn't make us all thumbs or all toes or all stomachs, okay? Thankfully, all right? But here the idea is that we need each other. I need people and we need people who will get here early and who will set up this place. People who will collect, use the little green buckets at the end and collect the slips. Everybody has a part to play. If nobody turned on the lights here, if nobody turned on the sound, we would have troubles. Everybody needs to do their part. And that's what he says here. Each part does its work. And finally, spiritual gifts, when used properly, they produce maturity. Again, this is the goal that he he places here before this church. It's to prepare God's people for works of service and then he's going to go on with, verse 14 starts with this phrase, then looking back, the consequence will be if you're using your gifts and the church is using its gifts of teaching, of pastoring, of shepherding and all these other things, the church is not going to be blown about. It's not going to be knocked over. 
Instead, as we speak truth in love, he says we grow up in Christ. And the picture here is of maturity and maturing in Christ. So just a couple of things for us to think about this week. First of all, our lifestyle almost always reflects what we believe and value in our minds. If you don't value that God has called you for a purpose, that he's redeemed you by his son, that he's sealed you by the spirit, that he's called you from death to life, he's called you to be part of a Christian community. If you don't value that, well, the truth of whether you value that is going to be demonstrated in what you do and say and how you respond to each other in the church. I would encourage you that if you really value God's values as $20 values, that's not going to be reflected in 10 cent living. That's going to be reflected in commitment. It's going to be reflected in love. It's going to be reflected in truth. Secondly, each of us has been given a spiritual gift. I want to challenge you. Do you know what your gift is? Do you know what God has made you to do? How you can contribute to the work of God? Each of us has a gift. It's not based on education. It's not based on what church you attend or where you grew up or who your parents are. No, each of us has a spiritual gift that God has graciously given us. A challenge for us to think about is whether we're using that for the benefit of the church. And then finally, the mutual goal of the church collectively as a group is spiritual growth and unity in Christ. Okay, there are many things you can do in life by yourself but being a Christian is not one of them. We mature together. We grow together. That's why it's important, and I'd encourage you, if you're not in a small group, if you're not in a Bible study where you're rubbing shoulders with other Christians, it's going to be very hard for you to mature. And I would encourage you to take seriously these things and to think about them. Let's pray and ask God to help us consolidate these truths in our mind. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And I just pray that as we listen, that we would do more than that, that we would be willing to walk and live lives that are worthy of the high calling which we have received. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.